Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out into the field to share with you everything we've learned. But over the past month, I have not learned anything. <laughs> and it's up to Steve to entertain us today with what he has learned. Yeah, so last time I did an episode, I talked about a chunky little bird, right? So oh, this the time, Yeah, the woodcock. Mm -hmm. okay. So this time, I'll be talking about a chunky little pitcher plant, <laughs> Saracenia purpurea, the purple pitcher plant. Um, and as you'll find out, there are many different groups of pitcher plants, and we'll have to sort those out. So here's the plan. I'll talk broadly about carnivorous plants, then we'll talk a little bit less broadly about the groups of plants that are considered pitcher plants, some of which are actually surprising, and then I'll talk even less broadly about the pitcher plant family we have around here in the Western Hemisphere, the Saraciniaceae, and finally I'll dig into some interesting aspects of the species that Bill and I will be seeing today, Saracenia purpurea, the purple pitcher plant, um, which is the most common and broadly distributed pitcher plant. Um, as well as the only member of the genus that inhabits cold, temperate climates. And I'll just be providing off-color commentary. Yeah, <laughs> not too off-color, Bill. <laughs> so for those of you, this might be your first episode of the podcast. I think we should say for the past few episodes, Steve and I have been trading off research duties. Yeah. Uh, so one person does the research, the other person comes along for the ride pretty much in the dark about what we're going to be covering. And that has been working out pretty well for us. Yeah, I think the origin of it was a mid-semester crisis where I was like, I can't do it, Bill. I can't do it, man. Not this month. And then Bill took it. And then, and then we switched on and off ever since. So, yeah. And uh, are we going to talk to people about where we are right now? See, this is tricky because we don't know what we're going to see and we don't want to endanger any plants. So my thought is that we are in a bog in western New York. <laughs> because we are going to be in a, a somewhat sensitive area, ecologically yeah. speaking, and we don't want to create a, a stampede of, of people through this area. Yeah, and while we always encourage people to go see exciting species, there is a lot of responsibility to seeing those species and getting yourself out there and really knowing how to respect the area. So, um, so we'll leave it up to you guys to figure out <laughs> where it is. Well, what, but... I, what I would say is if what we covered on this episode, if you find it interesting, get in touch with a local nature center or botanical club. Find out if they are doing any field trips to a bog in your area. Because really, folks, if you don't know about bogs, or even if you do and you've never visited a bog, it is really a habitat unlike any you have ever been in before. I think it's, it's a place everybody should visit, yeah. at least once in their life. Because every time I visit a bog, it's a trip I always remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, if you do go, make sure to bring some, like, tall rubber boots with you. And uh, this is my first time wearing gum leaf boots of my own. So Bill and I are no longer sharing boots. And we'll talk about it later in the episode. But um, I currently have a, a brand new pair of gum leaf boots on right now. And I, I was in a bog two weeks ago. And just comparing today and two weeks ago is you can't compare the two just walking so nicely through complete wetness is oh man it's a totally different experience this will be one of the first episodes we're recording where i'm not concerned about steve's footwear because <laughs> no matter where we go he always seems to just be wearing sneakers <laughs> and we should say um jack butler is also with us so say hi jack hello <laughs> yeah so he's just going to be kind of trailing behind us and, yeah. and you'll hear more from him um 
in the ad section halfway through the episode. That's right. Yeah. So I want to give people an idea of where we're at, though, just in terms of what's around us. Sure. Uh, so we are on the edge of a forest. Uh, there's a clearing in the forest where the vegetation is uh, somewhat lower, and we are on the edge of a muddy trail heading out into the open area. So we're going to be kind of wending our way through this this trail. There's already some large logs that people have left down because it is muddy, and this yeah. is the border of the bog. Yes. And the bog itself, the reason that we can actually, and we will be walking out on the bog, but the reason that we can do that is A, we found a well-defined trail that many people have used before us, yeah. so don't just go walking out on bogs and <laughs> making your own trail. But uh, two, there's a layer of sphagnum moss that has formed over the bog, and there's just layer upon layer upon layer of sphagnum, and we're actually, it feels like you're kind of on a waterbed, yep. but a little bit more stable. Well. You can fall through, I guess, but, <laughs> but, but it's a more stable waterbed, it feels like. And um, it's just you're on this large, floating, dense mat of sphagnum moss, and, and um, that's what everything out here is growing on. We have some tamarack also. What, what do people also call that? Uh, larch. Larch, yeah. yeah. Um, the deciduous conifer. That's um, right. And we're also going to see a number of members of the Heath family, but we're actually going to talk about that later. So um, Before we get started, yeah. I feel like we need to do a very brief, if it's possible, just introduction to what a bog is. Sure. It's a, a highly acidic environment, mm -hmm. right? So there was some depression that over time uh, has slowly started to fill in, but there's very little outflow or inflow mm -hmm. into the depression. So things start to pile up. Uh, sphagnum moss, once it gets a foothold, starts to create, as Steve said, a mat across the top. So it's a nutrient poor habitat but you since it's it is nutrient poor you get these unique species that have evolved to live in this nutrient poor environment uh, decomposition happens very slowly because it is so highly acidic underneath the mat the temperatures of the water are usually very cold and since it i feel like i'm saying highly acidic a lot <laughs> but that is a big part of a bog yeah yeah so you get things like picture plants and sundews and, and these carnivorous plants that maybe you've heard about before. Yeah. So is that a good summary? Yeah, I think it's fine. <laughs> so acidic, standing water, sphagnum moss. We yeah. basically hit all the major points. Yeah. And eventually what, what can happen in the bog, since there's very little inflow or outflow, is the mat can get thick enough where it eventually hits bottom and then it'll become a meadow and then be reclaimed by the forest. That's what can happen, but it takes a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. So I think to begin with, um, let's just define what a pitcher plant is. So it is a carnivorous plant. And because we really haven't talked about carnivorous plants before, I think it's worth briefly exploring this group in general. So what makes uh, these plants different than non-carnivorous plants? Uh, in short, these are plants that eat animals. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the most simple way to say it. Um, it. Like typically we think of plants as producers and animals as consumers. Um, plants are immobile and they need to defend themselves against animals, both physically and chemically. But there's been at least 800 species of the over 350,000 flowering plants that have gone against the grain and decided to become predators themselves. So Decided. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're going to hear a lot of language like that throughout, right. the, throughout the podcast. So um, I'll try to be careful, but I'm sure Bill will jump down my throat. I will. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Yeah. Um, so these immobile predators are called carnivorous plants. Um, and in terms of the name, carnivore just comes from the Latin carnis and vor. 
uh, roughly translating to flesh swallower. <laughs> and they mostly eat insects, um, but they can also go after some larger prey as well. Um, so in terms of the carnivorous plant diversity, there are currently 19 genera of carnivorous plants that represent at least 10 independent origins for carnivory within the flowering plants. So this isn't something that happened once. This happened completely on its own 10 times that we know of throughout evolutionary history. One really important thing about carnivorous plants is that they get most of their nutrients from animal prey um, in sometimes vastly different ways. So I plan on covering some of these other carnivorous plant groups in upcoming episodes, but I want to give a brief preview to three other groups in our area, just so we have something to compare the pitcher plant to. Just a really, really brief overview. So sundews, uh, that's something we're actually going to be seeing today. Um, these have leaves that are covered in really short little hairs called tentacles, and they're tipped with balls of sticky dew. Um, and maybe a prey species like an insect would get stuck on that dew, and then the leaf would slowly roll up around them and digest them. So that's, that's one type. Um, the Venus flytrap, that's probably the best-known carnivorous yeah. plant. Um, these guys have modified leaves that, that actually kind of look like open jaws. Um, and when an insect, for example, is on the leaf in the open jaw area and meets the right requirements, the trap will like rapidly snap shut and catch and digest the prey. And lastly, the bladder warts. Uh, these guys have small bladders that grow under whatever substrate they're growing on. Um, so these can be aquatic or terrestrial species, but the aquatic species have the largest and most obvious bladders. Um, so when a prey brushes against the trap's trigger bristles, the bladder will actually suck them in extremely quickly and digest them. It's incredibly cool. Oh, yeah. I think it's like 0 0.06 of a second or something. I don't know. It's something crazy. It's super, super fast. So we'll hopefully get to all of these groups in more detail in future episodes, but I just really wanted to give a quick um, explanation of three other mechanisms that plants have for eating animals, and I think it really will be useful for a comparison with pitcher plants throughout the episode. So uh, I think... It's important to go a little bit more in detail of what makes a carnivorous plant a carnivorous plant. Um, and there's something called the carnivorous syndrome. Um, and that's defined as capturing or trapping prey in specialized, usually attractive uh, traps, um, killing the captured prey, digesting the prey, absorbing the nutrients from the killed and digested prey, and then using these metabolites for growth and development. Um, so only plants that possess all five of these traits can be considered carnivorous. Really? Um, yes. And uh, interestingly, pitcher plants have another trait, and this is attraction and retention of prey. So uh, these traits can be useful, but it's actually not required for carnivory. Just if the chance of it happening is enough, then that's all you really need for a carnivorous plant to be successful, is that just by chance it may land there. So other plants that I won't really get into, like the corkscrew plant, and bladder warts, they're kind of like that. There's nothing attracting them towards the trap. It just kind of happens on its own. Okay. So uh, let's think back to those five traits really quick. So I, I'm not sure you noticed, but I said that carnivorous plants need to be able to kill the captured prey. And they're just not passively waiting around for the animal to die before digesting it. This means that carnivorous plants are different from saprophytic plants. Ah, all right, um, so you're opening a whole nother realm. Here. Yeah, so these, these are plants, just let's just say it simply, they just absorb decaying biomass. Right. That's as far as we need to take it, and that's not what, what carnivorous plants are doing. Sure, they are doing that, but they're the ones killing it. They're just not finding something dead inside of them. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because all of my previous naturalist training, when you say saprophyte, I automatically think of... Fungi? No, I automatically think of Indian pipe. 
Oh, got it. But hasn't it been found relatively recently that Indian pipe is not a saprophyte? I don't know. All right. Well, I don't know about that, but we should mention that we are going to be doing an episode on Indian pipe. Someone did recommend that we do an episode not that long ago. So I just want to let that person know we heard you and it's on our plate. <laughs> <laughs> I take it that's going to be Bill's next episode. <laughs> hey, it's if it's a, a plant, idea. I'm fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of digestion and mineralization, uh, this is actually done of, in one or two ways by pitcher plants. Um, it's either done by releasing their own digestive enzymes or relying on trap commensals, a.k.a. digestive mutualists. Oh, that'd be a great band name, the digestive <laughs> mutualists. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, while most of their nutrients typically comes from prey, many carnivorous plants can also acquire organic and mineral nutrients from detritus, pollen, algae, or microorganisms. So it doesn't just need to be things that they actively trap. Sometimes something will just land inside the pitcher, or, for example. Yeah. I, I want to just briefly touch on the habitat. We already got into a little bit, but um, obviously we're out on a bog right now. And well, we're not on the bog yet. I've been waiting, but you're still talking. You have one foot out on the bog. <laughs> if you want to go on the bog, we can move closer to the bog. Phil. All right, why don't, why don't we head in a little bit? Because, folks, I'm sure as you're hearing, uh, it's a little bit windy today, so we are picking up some wind noise on the mic, but we're hoping as we get out, onto the bog it might not be quite as bad because we're getting a lot of leaf noise especially yeah we're right in a path here too so i think as soon as we get into the shrubbier area we might be better off all right yeah so you're gonna hear us walking through the mud here folks (laughs) okay whoa bill just sunk in (laughs) good thing i had my boots on (laughs) okay it's like a waterbed it is okay correction Bill and I are on a bog now. Yes. <laughs> so uh, this kind of wet, nutrient-poor, and unshaded habitat is common across the board for carnivorous plants. Um, and a good question might be why? Why do they prefer these types of environments? So, Bill, do you want to guess why they're out uh, on a bog? Well, I why think because there's not as much competition out here. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really glad that that's what you said. In fact, that's what I predicted you would say in my notes <laughs> am i wrong <laughs> uh based on what we know right now that's saying too much okay which is surprising to me because that's the answer i would have given before reading what i had to read for this episode so there have been some competition experiments where carnivorous plants were grown in more nutrient rich soils without competing non-carnivorous plants and this led to carnivorous plants reallocating resources that typically go towards trap production and it used them to create increased chlorophyll concentrations in the leaves or create leaves with greater surface area. So in some cases, this decreased investment in carnivory um, with increasing substrate nutrient availability was adaptive. But in other cases, growing the plant in nutrient-rich conditions reduced both trap production and individual plant fitness. So it seems like in some conditions, they're doing just fine. And then in other conditions, even without competitors, they're not doing well. So it's not that they're trying to escape competition because they can compete too. And they've done studies where they have uh, some species with competitors and some without, and it just doesn't really pan out. Um, So I think the point is, is that it's not the same across the board. And those studies don't demonstrate that carnivorous plants are being outcompeted by non-carnivorous plants. So it may be part of the answer, but maybe just a small Right, and it might even be the answer in some cases, but not others. But it's not something that we can really make the case for. 
um, across the board anyway. That seems to be what usually happens in whatever subject we're looking at. But it's not something that we can say about carnivorous plants. So we have to be careful about how we say things. All right. Um, so uh, another thing is that soils are really complicated, and there are actually a lot of factors that need to be considered, um, including uh, the soil nutrition, um, competition with non-carnivorous plants, uh, the calcium concentration in the soil, um, soil redox potential, light availability, water availability, and even something that has definitely changed at least since colonization, but fire regimes. That's another thing that has a, a major effect as well. Um, so currently we still don't know why carnivorous plants are mainly absent from habitats with nutrient-rich soils. There haven't been many studies that include both non-carnivorous plants and carnivorous plants, and that's really going to be a major key to kind of finding the answers in, in a major way. So moving forward, we also need to explore traits that both carnivorous and non-carnivorous herbs share that make them vulnerable to competition from woody plants, for example, um, or maybe why they seem to happily coexist when woody plants are reduced by fire or other disturbances. So there are situations where they do perfectly fine, and then there haven't really, like I said, there's not really been studies that look at the competition with woody plants, especially when they're competing with, for water resources in the soil. So this is something that researchers are really going to have to look to in the future if they're really going to figure out these problems. In terms of the evolution of carnivory, I'm going to save going into that in any serious detail in my next carnivorous plant installment. Um, otherwise, this episode would definitely be like way too long. Um, but as always, I'll just plant a few seeds now so we'll have all these ideas rattling around in our brains <laughs> in preparation for the next episode. Um, but the fact that carnivorous plants even exist in the first place is pretty mind-blowing. But as it turns out, thousands of non-carnivorous vascular plants have sticky glandular organs that ensnare insects. And most plants can actually absorb nutrients through their stems and leaves. So, so you're already kind of seeing similarity between carnivorous and non-carnivorous plants. They, they have similar traits. It's like carnivorous plants took those existing traits and just expanded on them. Yeah, they really ran with them. Yeah. They sprinted with them. <laughs> <laughs> but the big difference is that most of these plants grow in relatively fertile soils, whereas carnivorous plants normally grow in nutrient-poor uh, terrestrial and aquatic environments. So um, while this intermittent capture and nutrient absorption of very small prey, such as like arthropod uh, herbivores and microbial pathogens, uh, appears to contribute very little uh, to the mineral nutrient budget of non-carnivorous plants, the capture and digestion of prey account for the majority of nutrients obtained by carnivorous ones. So that's going to be another major difference is while they can both do it, carnivorous plants really heavily depend on it much more than non-carnivorous plants. Um, and you would think that seems obvious, but I think it's important to consider that it seems like evolution is always repurposing things that were already present. Um, and uh, the more you look into evolution, the more that definitely ends up being the case, is that it's just repurposing on top of repurposing on top of repurposing. And of course, it had to start somewhere, yeah. um, but you definitely see that a lot. Now, tell me if you're going to get into this a little later on. Probably will. But <laughs> pitcher plants don't have to eat insects, correct? And the reason I'm asking that is mm -hmm. because, believe it or not, at, at a local grocery store a few years ago, they had pitcher plants for sale yeah in little pots i'm like wow i gotta buy one of these mm -hmm. so i bought one and in the directions it, it basically said as long as you keep the proper soil and you water the plant regularly you don't have to give it insects but it said you can throw insects in now and then yeah so 
there are going to be situations where they don't do much digestion at all. So their roots are capable of absorbing nutrients. Has it ever flowered? Well, I, I killed it within six months. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm horrible at taking care of plants. but <laughs> There's part of your answer. It died. <laughs> but the, the thing with carnivorous plants is that, and especially with pitcher plants, is that in years where they don't flower, and I'll get into this a little bit later, they really don't do much digestion. There will even be things that can accumulate in their pitchers, but they won't be doing much with it. Okay. So it's complicated. <laughs> That's actually a really good answer. It's complicated. <laughs> That's a cop out. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think now is a good chance that we've covered carnivory and we never have to think about that stuff again, <laughs> but now we're going to start touching into pitcher plants. And this, this part is maybe my favorite part because I found so many surprising things by looking into this. I thought this was going to be a much more simple episode, but as it turns out, oh, we had a mouse. Oh, out here yeah it walked halfway across the path and then then went <laughs> scooted right back in wow <laughs> all right <laughs> so all right so finally we can move on to pitcher plants specifically so generally pitcher plants have modified leaves for capturing prey known as pitfall traps and that's going to be the common theme that you see among all pitcher plants um, these traps are passive meaning that they don't require any movement by the plant to capture the prey. So that's going to be unlike the other species I mentioned earlier, like the Venus flytraps, the sundews, and the bladderworts. Well, I guess the sundews don't move to capture the prey, but they move after right. they've captured the prey. Um, so basically, pitfall traps are deep cup-like traps that are filled with fluid. Um, that cup is both the trap and the stomach um, and provides the plant with the majority of the nutrients that it can't get from photosynthesis. So, of course, from photosynthesis... Oh, it, it just ran out again. Hey, there he is. Nice. No, and it even squeaked here. as it was running. <laughs> <laughs> so the cup is both the trap and the stomach. Um, and they provide the plant with the majority of the nutrients that it can't get from photosynthesis. So photosynthesis is really going to be involved with a lot of carbons and oxygens and things like that and hydrogens, but the harder things like the nitrogen and the phosphorus, those are going to be the things that it's going to get from its animal prey. There are actually many groups of species that fit this general description. Uh, and, and I've spent way too much time thinking about how I wanted to talk about this, um, but against my better judgment and my own interests, I decided to skip the phylogenetic stuff for the most part. So, thank you, Steve. <laughs> don't say thank you just yet. So, <laughs> The major takeaway is that there are four major groups of pitcher plants. Uh, 130 to 160 species in the Nepenthaceae, 35 species in the Saracenaceae, one species in the Cephalotaceae, and mind-blowingly, there are three species of Bromeliad, two in the Bromeliaceae, and one in the Aerocolaceae that are also carnivorous. And if you're not familiar with Bromeliads, the foliage can either be really thin and needle-like to broad and flat, and typically grows in like a basil rosette. Many of you might have tillandsias, those air plants growing in your home. Um, that's a bromeliad. Or if you know what a pineapple plant looks like, um, you've definitely seen a bromeliad if you've seen a pineapple plant. Um, these three species are a little bit different in that they don't have pitchers on individual leaves, but instead the pitcher is comprised of a tube-like whorl of multiple broad linear leaves that form a long tube where the prey is captured and digested. So it kind of looks like toilet paper roll sticking out of the ground. And really, it's just a bunch of rolled green leaves. Okay. Yeah. Did you know about this? I did not. Now, are, correct me if I'm wrong, are all bromeliads air plants? 
or no? Uh, so when you say air plant, I think maybe a lot of people think that that's going to be a plant that grows on something else, that it really doesn't have roots of its own or nothing significant. Right. Oh, um, that's an epiphyte. I think many are epiphytic. Okay. But you can still have them growing on the ground. Um, even in the botanical gardens okay. uh, in Buffalo, we have them just planted in the soil in some spots. And while it's relatively easy to accept that different types of carnivorous plants have independent evolutionary origins, it turns out that these four major groups of pitcher plants are actually not closely related at all. So um, this is all convergent evolution? Yes. So even within the pitcher plants, they're not related. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So our Western Hemisphere pitchers uh, in the Saraciniaceae are more closely related to blueberries than they are <laughs> any other pitcher plant group. Uh, the Nepenthes pitcher plants, those guys are much more closely related to sundews and Venus flytraps than any other pitcher plant. Which I think is mind-blowing, because yeah. that's a totally different carnivorous plant altogether. Um, but, but since we really haven't talked about those yet, uh, they're also more closely related to cacti and pokeweed uh, in the pink order what? than any other pitcher plant. Yeah. Um, there is a single Australian endemic called Cephalotus follicularis, and that one's more closely related to uh, those little wood sorrels. You know, <laughs> the, uh, the people call them sourgrass, or I don't yeah. know. Uh, they're beautiful little plants. Oxalis. Yeah, oxalis, little heart-shaped leaves. Um, but yeah, the, the cephalotus is, is much more closely related to an oxalis wow. than it is any, any other pitcher plant. And then the three bromeliads, this one was easy, I guess. They're more closely related to grasses than, uh, th than any other pitcher plant. Um, and then I think that last group are the easiest to believe, but the other ones I still think are mind-blowing. It's the frustrating magic of DNA, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the, the pitchers of these groups, even though they look similar... Um, they're really only superficially similar, and there are actually a lot of differences. So um, we'll get into it more as we focus on the family that contains our species of interest, the purple pitcher plant. Um, but I think now might be a good time to actually start focusing on the Saraciniaceae. Um, well, we have one down at our feet here. We do, yes. And uh, we actually... You put the flowers to sleep, Steve. They're nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's something that I'll definitely point out. So... All right, why don't we start with the flower? So the flower might be something you notice first. So the flower is this really tall, nodding, Whoa. globular flower. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the cool things about it is that um, if you turn it upside down, um, there's kind of like an umbrella-shaped stigma, so the, the top of the female part of the plant. And if you kind of peel back that umbrella, there's a ton of stigmas down there, just a bunch oh, of loaded wow. hmm. uh, yellow anthers, just we'll put some loaded pictures. with pollen. We'll put some pictures in the episode notes, too, so people can look. Yeah, and when I'm not manipulating it like this, it's just kind of drooping down, and these dark uh, maroon petals are just hanging down over that upside-down umbrella-like um, female part. So this is a tall, nodding blossom. What would you say about It's about 12 to 18 inches tall. Yeah. And the flower head... Is probably three about three inches. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, three to four inches. It looks like it's made out of wax. Oh yeah, it doesn't look real. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's real, <laughs> real funny looking. And then the pitchers are growing basally out from the base of that flower stem. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about uh, these type of pitcher plants is that the entire leaf is the pitcher, whereas, for example, in in Nepenthes, the pitcher is actually forming at the end of a long stalk that's coming off of the tip of the leaf. 
Oh. Yeah, and it's it's really weird. I actually own an Nepenthes, and it's it's definitely a really cool thing to look at. So now, the one we're looking at, repeat mm-hmm. the, the genus of that again? So Saraciniaceae is the family, and Saracinia is the genus. Okay. So Nepenthes, how big are those compared to this? Uh, they can be gigantic, oh. but the ones I have are very small. Okay. They're like an inch tall right now. I was going to say, Steve was holding up his fingers. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, mine aren't very big, but I've seen people who have their own Nepenthes pitcher plants, and they're gigantic. <laughs> it, it, it's it's hard to describe how big they are, but they're, they're definitely massive, or they can be massive anyway. So the pitchers that we're looking at here, I would say these are about, what, eight inches? The whole pitcher is about eight inches long? Yeah, it's it might not even be that big. And I know there are bigger ones out there, Right. but I just want to compare this to nepenthes really quickly okay so and this is something i kind of stumbled across online but you're aware of the venus flytrap i've heard of it yeah so (laughs) nepenthes have been affectionately called the penis (laughs) flytrap because uh of how the species actually looks before the pitcher matures and the lid opens up the resemblance is actually kind of uncanny, uh, veins and all. All right, <laughs> and you'll uh, you'll never mistake a trumpet pitcher for uh, a Nepenthes because they're found on opposite sides of the planet. But <laughs> I just thought it was really funny that I stumbled across this Nepenthes and I was like, "This can't be real." So I looked into it and I found it. But I guess there's a number that look like that. All right, I got to stop you there. Yeah, because I have to share with you some feedback I got on the Downy Harry episode. Really, uh, from someone who. I'll, I'll tell you their name off mic, but sure. they, they wanted me to tell you this. They, they kind of stopped me and said, Bill, I listened to your, your Downey and Harry episode. I said, and I had to turn it off. I said, what? why? It's like, I got to the part where Steve made some kind of reference to you pounding wood. It's like, and, and made some kind of juvenile joke about it. He's like, oh, I can't believe you guys went there. <laughs> he turned it off. Hey, well... <laughs> He's not our target audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I tried nicely to tell. <laughs> like, like I, I, I should have said, I hang around second graders all day. I mean, that's like... <laughs> so I want to say, in terms of this one, I could have skipped it, but I didn't make this up. <laughs> this is a real thing um, that people really do call the Nepenthes as well. All right. Um, so one other thing that you'll notice about the Saracenia pitcher plant, so you'll see it has this single wing that's uh, pointing towards the inside of the plant, and it's just a single wing down the side of the pitcher. Um, and you can compare that to another pitcher plant that I mentioned before, Cephalotus, which actually has multiple wings going down the plant. So even though wings aren't like a big thing, it's definitely a major difference. Whereas in the Saracenia, it almost looks like someone folded the leaf in half yeah and uh, and it's kind of pressed on the one side i was thinking how to describe the leaf and that's what it looks like it's like someone took kind of a an oval shaped leaf and folded it over yeah and glued the edges together and just leaving an opening up at the top yeah and as it turns out the younger the plant is the younger the leaf is i should say the more of the leaf that's made out of that wing, or the, the greater percentage of the, the, the leaf that is going to be the wing. And as the plant gets bigger, a larger and larger percentage ends up being the trap itself. Um, and the wing tends to decrease in size, but looking at this one, it's a huge wing on this guy right here. 
Uh, it really still looks like it's 50-50, but this guy probably still has a good way to grow. Are these always growing and then they go dormant and kind of die off in the fall and then they regrow again to an even larger size? Yeah, so Saracenia are definitely perennial, so they're going to keep growing back every year. So, um, But each individual pitcher dies each year is what you're saying? It does, but, but actually they're actually continuously replacing each other. The Saracenia leaf, um, they typically stick around for at least 100 days. But they're really not super, super long-lived. You can get pitchers that stick around way longer than that, but they may not be doing much after that point. Okay. Yeah. But they're not evergreen. Yes, they're not evergreen. No. Mm-hmm. All right, so I just wanted to give a general idea of how the Saraciniaceae was different from the other three pitcher plant groups. Just some, like, little differences between the pitchers. But before we go deeper into the family, I just want to quickly mention some points about its evolution. Um, and you'll see why we're actually saving the evolution bit for the next episode. So in terms of the evolution of pitcher plants in general, unfortunately there's really little to no fossil evidence to go on. There was a species in China that was found from 125 million years ago that appears to look like our local pitchers from a side profile, but it's unlikely that they're related to the modern pitcher plants because that's actually very close to the appearance of the first angiosperms. So there's no way Uh, that it just started off with pitchers, right? (laughs) And there is actually a hypothesis Um, that these fossil pitchers are actually not pitchers at all, but they might actually just be galls created on the leaves of an extinct conifer. So there may be, like I said, little to none. (laughs) So there's either something or nothing. All right, so um, in terms of the Saraceniaceae in general, these guys are also known as trumpet or western hemisphere pitcher plants. Um, And this family is 35 species large. There's three genera. Um, and they're all located within North America and Northern South America. To paint a picture, pitchers in this family can be thought of as having four zones. Um, So the first zone is the lid, or the hood that's known as the operculum. Um, This area is typically bright colored uh, with extra floral nectaries for attracting prey that really attract mostly flying and crawling arthropods. Um, They also have an anti-adhesive surface and uh, downward-pointing hairs for capture. And you can actually see it really, really well in the pitcher plants here. They're stiff. They're they're really good. Right on the lip of the pitcher. Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, the next zone down is this rolled lip, also called the peristome. And you can actually see it pretty well here, is that you have this rolled lip on the edge. And this surface is also very slick, and it actually contains more of those extra floral nectaries. I'm slowly sinking. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> I was going to say, this is one of the best tests. Go ahead. So this section has microscopic directional surface features that may make it harder for potential prey to move away from the pitfall trap. Uh, this section also contains easily detachable wax crystals in the inner surface, possibly contaminating the adhesive pads um, uh, from uh, the pads on um, insects' feet. Uh-huh. Um, and generally just coating the prey and making it difficult for them to crawl out. So the third zone uh, into the pitcher is actually uh, more or less the danger zone. (laughs) If you're here, you're as good as dinner. Um, So this zone is slippery, uh, hairless, and it's it's a bit too narrow for the winged insects to escape, especially uh, if their wings are coated in in wax. Um, And then the final zone is the pool of rainwater and digestive mutualists that exhausted insects fall into. So uh, this section also contains dense downward pointed hairs and uh, that's really kind of like adding an extra layer of certainty that the prey just can't escape. So as I hinted before, 
these family of pitchers are within the Ericales order, which makes them pretty closely related to a lot of the other bog-loving species of plants, the heaths, many of which we could actually see around here. I know when I was looking online, um, and even just around us, there's definitely some rhododendron here, some Indian pipe, teaberry, cranberry, blueberry, lots of different um, ericaceous species. Leatherleaf. Yeah. Didn't we use that word ericaceous in the uh, Algonquin? Yeah, you the quizzed me on it. Spruce grouse episode. Yeah. Yes. Shout out to the spruce grouse episode. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it, there's also a bunch of non-ericaceous species as well that we brought up. So, uh, again, there's the larch. Um, I know there's black spruce, uh, a number of sedges here, sphagnum, um, and another carnivorous plant, the round leaf sundew, which, which we will be seeing as well. Um, and also, when I looked online, there's definitely some bladder warts here as well. Yeah. And that's in the genus Utricularia, totally unrelated to any of these. But that would be really great to see. I know they're out here, but we might not have enough time today to, to go see them. Those are the ones, folks, with the pouches that suck things in. Yeah. But they need to be in standing water. They don't have to be. Oh, really? The ones around here are, but, okay. but not in general. As I mentioned earlier, and I think this is actually a really interesting point, some carnivorous plants do not release their own digestive enzymes. And all three genera of pitcher plants actually fall into this category. This type of carnivorous plant is called a holocarnivorous plant, um, and that's compared with something called a hemicarnivorous plant, which does produce its own digestive juices. So this means that this group of plants relies on other organisms that live within the pitchers to digest the prey initially. Hmm. And at that that's point, a mutualism. Yeah, yeah. Uh. And at that point, um, the pitcher can finally absorb the poop of the digestive mutualists. Uh, so at first I was actually kind of disappointed that we couldn't spend more time talking about Nepenthes because at least four species of Nepenthes obtain some or all of their nutrients from rat, shrew, and bat poop. So I'm glad we at least got to talk about it, you know? Like, it's, it's still happening. Um, you know, things are still being attracted to these pitchers. They're not mammals, but, you know, why give them the spotlight, you know? Right. There's a lot of cool things that aren't mammals. So. There, there's a, a True Facts. It's a great nature YouTube channel. Okay, yeah. Yeah, about a type of pitcher plant that has evolved to be basically a toilet for a shrew. Yeah. So it produces some kind of attractant to the shrew, mm -hmm. and in order to get it, the, true, the shrew has to position itself over the pitcher. Yeah, th that's in the penthes, and it's basically a toilet for tree shrews <laughs> right. yeah and uh it's it's really a fascinating right. <laughs> relationship but it's there's rats there's shrews there's bats it's it's crazy with wow. that group um <laughs> so, don't, so don't drink that water probably. yeah i guess not <laughs> i could grow some next to my bed there you go <laughs> yeah. it's your million dollar idea yeah <laughs> another um so in terms of the family itself the saraceniaceae actually contains three genera um, so starting with Heliamphora, these species actually have traps that look a lot like our uh, Saracenia here, um, but they have a tiny little lid at the top. Um, and and uh, that's the biggest difference between it and the pitcher plants we have here. All 23 species of this genus are endemic to the um, Guyana highlands in southern Venezuela and small portions of Brazil and Guyana, meaning that we probably can't see these pitchers for a while. And we'll just have to be content with just knowing that they're there. What do you mean can't see them for a while? Well, the U.S. currently has a level four do not travel advisory <laughs> to Venezuela. Um, and that's like the highest travel advisory level that the Department of State can give. I don't know much about anything except plants. So 
link to support the International Rescue Committee for the Aid of Venezuelan <laughs> Refugees in the episode notes. Uh, it has four out of four stars on Charity Navigator, so uh, we'll just throw it down there. And if anyone feels the need, uh, you can go donate to them because uh, they're doing good work, I guess. Good job, Steve. Yeah, so, <laughs> all right, so on to the second genus. These guys are crazy. They're called Darlingtonia, um, and it's just comprised of one species, Darlingtonia californica. And these guys are found in northern California and southwestern Oregon. This is the sister group to the other two genera, meaning that it branched off earlier uh, evolutionarily. Um, and it's actually a bit different. So imagine this like tall green and red pitcher, but the top isn't open like the other two genera. It's bent over kind of like a cobra head, and it has this forked tongue-like lip called a fishtail appendage that is protruding from underneath the head where the pitcher plant opening actually is. And these guys are actually called cobra lilies. Have you ever heard of them? Nope. No, they're really, really cool. And we're probably going to have to share a picture of them because it's actually... Did you get any picture of what I was trying to describe in your head? Sure. Okay, good. But they're cooler than I could describe. So we're definitely going to have to share a picture of them at some point. One of the cool things about them is that they have a population that contains a form that is completely in green hues. There's no red whatsoever. So it's, it's just this um, anthocyanin-free form, um, which is really, really cool. Um, so normally you get the reds and the greens, but it's just greens. But uh, we'll actually get into that a tiny bit later as well. So Saracenia, finally, uh, the genus that contains the purple pitcher plant. Um, th- we only have 11 species of them here. This genus is found throughout the southeastern U.S., New England, the Great Lakes states, and much of southern Canada. But the vast majority of its range is due to a single species, and actually our target species, Saracenia purpurea. The uh, southeastern U.S. Uh, is actually a geographic hotspot for many of the other Saracenia species. The, the vast majority of the range is just our purple pitcher plant. Um, but like the cobra lily, there are anthocyanin-free forms that have been found in nearly every species, um, and they're typically growing with other normally colored individuals. And, and this is kind of cool. Through some breeding experiments, it actually seems like the anthocyanin-free expression, Saracenia, is likely controlled by just a single locus, so just a single gene with two alleles, uh, the anthocyanin-free and just the regular one. Um, but the anthocyanin-free one is the recessive allele there. So I think that's kind of cool that you just you get both types in many, many populations. All right, can uh, we move a little bit? Because I am really slowly sinking here. Yeah, you've been sinking a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this definitely uh, looks like a little bit of a path here. Yeah. Well, there's some skunk cabbage. Nearby. So we're walking on the mat. And as Steve said before, it does feel like a, a little like a waterbed. We have lots of little spruce going around us. Lots of little larch trees. Yeah. Okay, this is better. Yeah, hopefully the wind ends up holding up for us here. All right, so in terms of the species within uh, the Saracenia genus, they do a a bit of admixture. So natural hybrids have been reported in every Saracenia species except one, and they do so whenever two species overlap, especially in southern Alabama, northern Florida, and southern Georgia. So... Um, This is actually a spot where up to five species can co-occur at the same locality, which would be nuts. Imagine if we're like at a bog and we're just surrounded by all these different species. Yeah, because we only have really one species here. I get jealous of other people sometimes when they live in more southern areas anyway. And as it turns out, and I found this is pretty surprising, the Saracenia species tend to be pretty infertile. Um, And strangely enough, hybrids tend to be quite fertile. And there have been many instances of back crossing that have been reported by several authors. Any many instances of what? 
back crossing. Okay. So hybrids back crossing with the parent. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and it's also important to note uh, here that it remains unknown whether any species of Saraciniaceae are actually of hybrid origin, but there definitely seems to be some gene flow between the individual Saracenia species, which is kind of interesting. But Saracenia species are also self-compatible, so they can just reproduce with themselves. There's nothing really stopping them from doing that. Um, but inbred plants tend to be, uh, they tend to produce significantly fewer seeds, seeds with depressed germination, and shorter pitchers than outcrossed plants. But strangely enough, not all 11 species have the same consequences of inbreeding. I know there's an individual pitcher plant, um, a purple pitcher plant that was introduced to Ohio in 1912, and it grew into a population of 157,000 plants by 1978. So that's wow. one plant. So you have to imagine that this population has a very low genetic diversity, but it still has dramatic growth nonetheless. In a similar vein, an introduced Swiss population actually found evidence of outbreeding depression. So that meant that there was greater reduction in seed weight with increasing genetic distance of the parents, which usually it's good to mix things up, but apparently not in, not in this case for yeah. the Saracenia. So this finding almost seems to corroborate with uh, the purple pitcher plant being the most widespread member of the family, but not the most genetically diverse in the genus. Um, and some biologists hypothesized that um, Saracenia purpurea may have experienced natural selection for inbreeding, but at least personally, that's kind of hard for me to understand. What do you mean uh, natural I, selection for inbreeding? So that there must be some... So it's been proposed that there's some protections with inbreeding because typically when you think of inbreeding in populations, that's, that's going to decrease your genetic variability. You could have inbreeding depression and the population can be very susceptible to things like diseases and other things and it won't be able to adapt so well. But not all plants are created equal in this regard. And we know that, that, that inbreeding depression isn't as strong in all populations, but it seems like Saracenia purpurea, for some reason, is really good at inbreeding. Okay. <laughs> it's real weird. <laughs> it's an interesting skill. Yeah. <laughs> I'm weird really flex, good at inbreeding. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm thinking on that note, it might be a good idea to cut to uh, a gum leaf ad, because we're actually here with Jack, and you know we, we're going to record something right out here at the bog. Right. So. All right. All right, we're here with Jack Butler, the owner of Gumleaf USA. Hello, Jack. Hey, Bill. Steve. Hey. Thanks for coming out with us today, Jack. My great fortune. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve and I are standing here right now in our Gumleaf boots. I have on, which kind is this? Uh, those are the Royal Zip. And I got to say, I've mentioned it many times on the episodes before. Whenever I'm out with these boots, uh, people always compliment me on them. I was out bird banding this morning, and someone who was a new volunteer... They definitely came up and they said, Bill, where'd you get those boots? I said, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> Small <laughs> so world. I told them all about Gumleaf USA. Yeah. And then Steve has on a brand new pair that we yeah. just received today. You were kind enough to, to give to us. Yeah, no one has complimented me on them yet, but it's only because I just got them. And uh, I will say, we just had to hike over some pretty decent terrain, and th they were so comfortable. They're really, really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're the uh, the ones uh, that you're sporting right now are uh, called the field boot, and the field boots are... Uh, uh, fabric lined, whereas the Royal Zips and many of our other boots are neoprene lined. So 
field boot that you're wearing is really intended for, say, uh, cool to warm temperatures where the neoprene line boots are more designed for cool to cold temperatures. But with the field boots, you can always just don additional socks if you want to when the weather really gets rough and cold and, you know, into the sub-zero temperatures or whatever. So that's a, always a good option. And I can just wear the Royal Zip without socks. You, you can wear them without <laughs> You can wear them in shorts if you want. Because <laughs> it's pretty warm right now, but my feet are all right. Yeah. yeah. I've, I find uh, my Royal Zips are five years old, and I find that uh, I wear them. I've been out in uh, 10 degrees below with just men's cotton dress socks, and I was wearing them last week. And wow. they're still five years old. They're made of 85% natural rubber, so they resist cracking. Um, phenomenally well they're going strong and they're five years old and for someone like me who's very hard on everything he owns the uh, the vibram soles come in handy yeah the other thing i would mention i guess real quickly is that from our least expensive boot to our most expensive boot the the soles of the boots are all designed they're all similar so if i blindfolded you they're all equally as comfortable you wouldn't know if you were in our most expensive boot or our least expensive boot so the design differences in the boots really comes down to functional differences. Do you want a zipper so they're super easy to get in and out of quickly? Do you have wide calves, you know, whether you're a man or a woman? Like you... Steve. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got the zips on. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so anyway, there's functional differences between them, but there's only about five different styles. And they're all handmade in Europe, and they're all made with a high natural rubber content, which is the reason they're so durable and they resist cracking. And for Field Guides listeners, we were just talking about, we're going to have a new offer code. If you head on over to the website, Jack, what's the website? Uh, www.gumleafusa.com. And our offer code is going to be TFG2019. Yep. And that'll get you free shipping on your order. And Jack, we just want to say thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Uh, really, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really honored to be uh, one of your first and maybe your only sponsors right now. But, <laughs> but I thoroughly enjoy the show. It's fantastic. And uh, a number of your listeners have already responded, uh, even from the very first uh, episode that you wow. mentioned our sponsorship on. The phone rang within an hour. Wow. It was amazing. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Jack. Thank you, and uh, we hope to have you on again sometime in the future. I'd love to. All right, wow, that was our ever uh, first-person ad. Yeah, we've never done that before. (laughs) I think it went well. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so now let's talk more specifically about the purple pitcher plant. So uh, this species also goes by the northern pitcher plant, but it also goes by Indian dipper, huntsman's cap, side saddle flower, Adam's pitcher, fever cup, smallpox plant, dumb watch, and whippoorwill boots. (laughs) And I hate every single one of these common what? names they're all horrible <laughs> i like adam's pitcher that's clever no it's yeah. bad so as i said before this is arguably the most successful american pitcher plant uh, as wait, well as... wait wait was the dumb one dumb what it was dumb watch why i don't know what are those sundials maybe maybe something like that i don't know that yeah. was my only guess was okay. the sundial because they're usually in exposed areas on bogs so oh like dumb like it doesn't it's silent and then it you can I was Is it just, as a sundial? I was just thinking it doesn't work as a sundial. So oh. I, I didn't actually look up why it was called that. I was just going to skip it because I, I hated it so much. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So like I was saying, um, this is arguably the most successful North American pitcher plant, as well as the only member of the genus that inhabits cold, temperate climates. Uh, when you're looking at this plant, like I was saying before, the only thing you're really seeing is the pitchers. There's nothing else to the leaves. And all those leaves are extending from the base of the plant and they're all open at the top, which is pretty convenient for collecting rain. 
The pitchers on this plant are typically up to six to eight inches in height, and this species is actually much more stout than the other pitchers in this genus. So the pitchers are green or red-purple with darker red-purple veins. We actually have a really beautiful one, right, a uh, really great example of that right yeah. under us. And the opening on top has this large, flared-out, frilly lid uh, with nectar glands and, and conspicuous veins painted right on it. This region also has a, a coating of fine downward-pointing hairs, uh, like most pitchers. And, uh, and actually, for this species, those hairs are actually longer and thicker uh, than other members of the genus. And I also read in one textbook that I was going through that these hairs also produce a numbing secretion as well. Yeah. So that's going to be something else that helps them catch their prey. And the liquid inside, like I was saying, is from precipitation um, that harbors mosquito larvae, bacteria, and even tadpoles at times. Um, though, <laughs> that would be incredible if we found one that had tadpoles in it today, because it doesn't seem like the water's deep enough. Um, but who knows, maybe there's some parts of this bog that, that it could work for. So these species, they actually eat the drowned prey, and then they shit out that sweet, sweet, nutrient-rich refuse for the pitcher to chow down on. Um, so some researchers also think that this open, upward-facing uh, opening of the pitchers are also possibly for catching leaf debris, for uh, microbial uh, pre-digestion, and eventually those nutrients will be digested by the pitcher plant itself. Wait, wait, so you're saying they eat plants and animals? Yes, yeah, yeah. So all that non-animal schmutz that collects in the pitchers may actually just be another source of nutrients in the plant. I remember when I was on the bog a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, this one's just full of junk. Like, it clearly didn't seem like animal parts at all. So you should call them omnivorous plants. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. New category. That's right. so digestion of this pre-digested prey occurs by special cells near the bottom of the pitcher. And strangely enough, individuals that don't flower in a given year, like I was saying earlier, do relatively little digestion, which kind of makes some sense. Like, why waste your energy if you're not needing to put up all that energy into a flower, right? Yeah. And the bottommost region of the pitcher is this long, narrow stalk where the indigestible parts of the insects accumulate. Pull up one of those pitchers. We're going to damage one. And then I... You can pour it into Steve's hand. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> Ready? Let's see what's in there. You gotta really tip it all oh, the way. Oh wow! So there's little tiny flying insects in there. I also said there's like bacteria and schmutz. Yeah, schmutz. <laughs> Even a little. It looks like a little feather or something. You can't couple, see. You see couple the little feathers. Yeah. Is there like? Can you see any insect larvae like wiggling around in no, there? No, I don't see any insect larvae yet. No. It is still pretty early in the season, though. Yeah. So, yeah. So we don't recommend doing that to lots of your pitchers. Uh, <laughs> if you're out on a bog, you see a bunch, but we can see it almost comes to a very fine stem here. So this is this bottom right here where it really narrows out. This is the part that would probably collect a lot of the things, um, like the uh, insect exoskeleton made of chitin that yeah. doesn't really digest all that well. So that's going to be something that would likely collect in the bottom here. This didn't seem like a very active pitcher, but I'm sure uh, we could find some if we looked hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> We don't want to pull up many. Yeah, right. Uh, so as a side note, one Michigan study of 214 pitchers found 504 individual insects from 13 orders and 49 families, most of which were flies, but what, ants were also an, a frequent victim as well. How many pitchers? So this was 214. And they found about 500 insects. Yep. So it's really not that many if you think about but it. But it's pretty diverse. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, so I think that's kind of demonstrating how they just don't, they're not specialists with any particular group, at least not in every case. That we can tell, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, 
Maybe they are specialists and they selectively digest the ones they like the best and that's why you don't find them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there are many ways that pitcher plants attract prey, including visual clues, nectar rewards, and olfactory cues. But the Nepenthes pitcher plants have another attractant that the Saracenia pitcher plants don't have, and that is acoustic attractants. Yeah, I, I said the same thing when I read that. Um, I was a little bit disappointed, but I still think it's it's still a pretty cool thing. That It's not that the pitcher plants make noise, uh, but that they're the right shape to be an ultrasonic reflector that the bats can use to find them and roost in them. What? And of course they're pooping in them, so that's where they're getting the, the nutrition from. In terms of visual cues, it's unclear if the purple pitcher plant has ultraviolet patterning, but others in the genus do have that. And it's also thought that that red-purple patterning is also an attractant as well. Um, And sometimes these lines are associated with extrafloral nectary production. And this is the phenomenon that's known as the nectivorous lines. And uh, although we haven't found evidence that these nectivorous lines have a significant effect on prey capture, you know, there could be something there. Um, These pitchers also have translucent areas known as um, aerials or fenestrations. And these are like little windows that let in more light than most of the pitcher does. So these like translucent areas may confuse trapped insects, reducing the probability of their escape or possibly aid in long distance attractants in the right lighting. Oh, there's a hummingbird. Look, do you see that branch up near the top? There's a hummingbird. Third branch down, fourth branch down. Ruby throwing hummingbird. It's a hummingbird. Do you see it? Oh, I see it. Yeah. I've never wow. seen a hummingbird out in the wild there like that. I know nice. we get hummingbirds around here, but I've never seen one birds. See, one of the people that, that taught me about nature, they uh, they said that if you just pick somewhere and stay there for 10 minutes, you'll see something, you know, never seen worth it. And we've been standing here for, well, <laughs> an hour and 22 minutes, <laughs> and we saw mice. I guess how often do you see that stuff? Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Oh, so like I was saying, these translucent areas may actually confuse the trapped insects, reducing the probability of their escape, or they could aid as long-distance attractants in the right lighting. So they may not be for confusion, but there might be something about them that, under the right conditions, makes an insect or something else move closer to it. Um, so maybe That's let's say if the big li- stretch. maybe if the light's shining on the right way, it, like they'll see different you know right. different mm. patterns on there than they would normally see. Mm. Uh, one thing I really have to bring up is that there's it's always important to remember that this red coloring of the pitchers might entirely be unrelated to carnivory. So right. red coloring is is usually caused by anthocyanin production, which is influenced by light ultraviolet radiation and nutrient availability, meaning that this red coloration predominantly may just play a role in photoprotection or maybe just be an indicator of nutrient stress. Well, right. Look at the sphagnum at our feet. Right. You would think that this is some nutrient stress they're dealing with right now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of nectar rewards, uh, all species of pitcher plants examined to date possess extra floral nectaries. And uh, in the purple pitcher plant, uh, nectar production is particularly high around the peristome, so that's that, that folded over uh, rim that it has. But other, plenty of other pitcher plants work like this as well. So it's um, the leaf producing nectar. The leaf is producing nectar. Wow, that's great. So the flower does it and the leaf does it. If, that's why they're called extra floral nectar. Right. <laughs> Outside the flower. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> See? <laughs> I got me some college. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So other species will also have some extra floral nectaries on the pitcher 
uh, rim, but also sometimes on the lid as well. But unfortunately, very few studies have actually provided qualitative and quantitative analyses of the sugar or amino acid content in both the floral and extrafloral nectaries, um, which could definitely be different and possibly allow for different types of specific species attractions for pollinators, prey, or even defenders. Well, I would think, maybe I'm wrong, but I would think the the pollen in the flower or the nectar in the flower would be different because you wouldn't want to eat your pollinator, right? Right. It's thought that maybe the ones that have the higher amino acid content might be the ones that are for the floral nectaries, not the extra floral nectaries, but who knows? It could be the opposite for all I know. There's definitely need, more work definitely needs to be done. So uh, in terms of olfactory cues, um, the traps in all three Saraceniaceae genera produce sweet scented nectar. Um, I gotta, I gotta ask. Yeah. So be honest, guys, when you first learned about olfactory, how long did it take before you realized that it wasn't old factory? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I definitely think there was definitely a moment in grade school or something that I was like, it's olfactory? Yeah. It was a long time before I realized that. And I think I even got so confused that at one point when I heard people say goldfinch, I thought they were saying goldfinch. And I was like, oh, probably just sounds like goldfinch, but it's really goldfinch. (laughs) And that's that's how confused I was. Um, Apparently I wasn't reading the name. I was more hearing people say the name. The best one is our our friend Tom from uh, Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. Big birder. And he had groups of kids out. Oh. Red tail. Is it a red tail? Or is it a blue jay mimicking a red tail? Oh, that's actually a really good point. It's a blue jay. Could be a blue jay. Wow. But uh, the the kid on Tom's walk, yeah, there it is, <laughs> laughing at us. He uh, he pointed out to Tom uh, on a tree nearby there was a new thatch. Oh no, <laughs> not hatch, hatch. <laughs> new thatch. A new Whoa. thatch. <laughs> I kind of like that better. <laughs> All right, sorry, Steve. So uh, Saracenia purpurea tends to have weaker scents than the other species in the genus. Um, and they, they tend to produce fewer components than are typically produced by photosynthetic leaves. Um, it also seems like uh, Saracenia purpurea changes its leaf odor composition over time. Um, so it could be the case that the young pitchers target flower-visiting insects by producing its own volatiles, um, and then older pitchers just rely on dimethyl disulfate created by decaying prey to attract carrion feeders for capture. Oh, that makes sense. So the kind of... Um, prey switching, this prey switching phenomenon is actually also seen in Nepenthes as well. And uh, a final aspect that needs to be considered is this is a cost-benefit analysis of producing scents in the first place. So how much reduction in growth and reproduction will result from real, reallocating its resources towards this, uh, this scent that it's producing? So if the growth and reproduction uh, in these plants are limited by nitrogen and phosphorus, as it is in most carnivorous plants, then the production of compounds containing only carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, such as terpenoids, uh, anthocyanins, and nectars that don't contain amino acids, would have little negative impact on the growth and reproduction of the plant. Um, so, So that just means that these compounds would actually have a very low cost to the plant that could easily offset, uh, that could be easily offset by the benefits um, in enhanced prey capture. So there are many questions that still need to be answered, but for now, uh, we need to be careful of the claims that we make about prey attraction because there really needs to be a lot more work done in this group. All right, so another interesting bit involves the term that we've actually heard before from Bill, 
um, inquilines. And Bill did bring this up in our first episode on goldenrod galls. Um, these I are completely do not remember. Yeah, so these are species that exploit the living space of another species. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, so an example would be a goldenrod gall, hence the name right. of the episode. Yeah. Um, so uh, these groups have actually been studied best in Saracenia purpurea. So that's pretty lucky because that's what I'm trying to focus on here. So the purple pitcher plant might be a good candidate for this because more than any other member of the genus, the purple pitcher plant has relatively prostrate growth form. Also, the pitcher mouth is open to precipitation, making it um, consistently full with liquid. And the stout shape of the pitcher also decreases desiccation, providing a reliable microenvironment for other species to live. So um, individual leaves are generally colonized within just days of opening, but they typically stick around for at least a year. And some have actually been found to continue to be digesting up to two years wow. after opening. Yeah. They take their time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the purple pitcher plant inquiline community has become um, a model experimental system for studying uh, contemporary questions about biogeography, community ecology, and evolution. But just for the purposes of what I'm talking about today, I just want to briefly describe a few species that spend a significant portion of their lives in and around pitcher plants, most of which contribute to the digestion of prey within the pitcher. Um, so. Now I'm going to backtrack ever so slightly. I mentioned earlier that the Saraceniaceae pitchers don't produce digestive enzymes, but at least young uh, purple pitcher plants, they do have digestive glands. And this is going to sound weird, but their role in actual digestion still requires some exploration because clearly there's a whole lot of stuff that lives inside the pitchers that are not being digested. <laughs> and there's been enough evidence that we know they're producing digestive enzymes, but it doesn't seem like they're doing anything. So for <laughs> That's all just intents in the young and, ones. Yes, okay. but the old ones don't have it. <laughs> so it, it seems like even though they're producing it, they're effectively a species that doesn't produce their own digestive enzymes. Hmm. Yeah. So these inquilines include uh, microbes like protobacteria and bacteria and a variety of yeasts. Um, there's also protists and rotifers that are also present. They feed on these microbes. The microorganisms themselves are prey uh, to at least uh, a few species of carnivorous mosquitoes and midges that complete their life cycle within the pitchers. And actually many species of flesh fly larvae are also common in purple pitcher plants. Uh, and these guys are also feeding on the prey captured inside the leaf. But this group is sort of interesting because they also partake in cannibalism. And, and due to this cannibalism, it often results in one survivor per leaf in some so species. pitcher plant death match. <laughs> yeah, right. But the pitcher plant seems like it's getting a whole lot out of it. Right. So. <laughs> wow. Um, so uh, purple pitcher plants also have non-aquatic inquilines, including four moth species that are actually obligate herbivores on the pitcher. So they eat the insides and they just leave like this thin membranous outer wall. And then they generally, uh, they'll weave this fine web over the top of the pitcher, likely to protect themselves from predators. Um, and then the larvae can actually move from leaf to leaf, but eventually they'll move to a final leaf where they actually cut a hole in the bottom of the pitcher, draining it out so they don't drown. Um, and that's when they'll actually develop into a pupa. So they'll actually do that part of the life cycle inside pitchers. Cool. Hmm. And finally, multiple spiders are also prey competitors uh, or even mutualists of the purple pitcher plant. Um, so finally, I want to briefly focus in on the status, the current status of the, pitcher, the purple pitcher plants. 
Um, so by 2009, wetland area in the USA had fallen to about 50% of that present in the 1600s. And habitat loss is definitely the largest threat to carnivorous plants in North America um, because they're not money makers. You know, a parking lot does a lot better than pitcher plants, So, (laughs) uh, unfortunately. So although carnivorous plants are found worldwide and several species have large geographic ranges, all of them occupy patchy, restricted microhabitats within their geographic ranges. Um, And dispersal uh, limitation may actually be one of the most important variables but uh, transplants have been successful in many species. So even though they can't get far themselves, we can transplant many of them. And, and there is some plans, some strategies for conservation of vulnerable carnivorous plants. But again, we'll just talk about that in some future episodes because uh, there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff that they're doing. When averaged within general, only sundew-like, but they're totally unrelated carnivorous plant genus um, Bibilis, as well as Nepenthes and Saracenia, were projected to have more increases than losses in habitat suitability in regions where they're already located. Meaning that as climate change continues, they'll basically continue to persist in and around their current habitat. Oh. So even though it seems like things are good, it's not like they're expanding all that much. But that's three groups out of a much larger group of carnivorous plants. So that's very, very little that are actually going to be benefiting. Or at least doing okay. Yeah. Um, So even though carnivorous plants, it's not looking that good for the future, at least the purple pitcher plant might be doing all right. (laughs) Kind of a high note. Um, All right, so that's it for purple pitcher plants. But I do plan on covering a couple more carnivorous plants before the summer's over and uh, really expand our knowledge of the carnivorous syndrome. So... Uh, carnivorous plants are not a self-contained topic, so as we build our understanding of carnivorous plants, we simultaneously gain insights into non-carnivorous plants as well. And there's actually a lot of research that still needs to be done, um, and in order to better understand plant evolution in general, further research needs to be focused on including both carnivorous and non-carnivorous plants together. And if you live in an area with carnivorous plants or live close enough by an area with carnivorous plants, I definitely recommend going out to look for them. But as always, if you do, be respectful of the habitat. Um, These are fragile environments. uh, So please walk only on existing trails and don't poach any plants (laughs) because there's a lot of cool ones out here. Don't touch them. (laughs) We just pulled off a leaf. Yeah. (laughs) It's like plucking a, you know, like a black cherry leaf off. There's nothing. Um, All right, guys, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. And first and foremost, we would like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Eliza, John Weaver, and Nick and Rebecca. And we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Rob, we named the dog Indy, Dean, Christina, Gavin, Pollywog, Jacqueline, Jessica, and especially Ken, Diane, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, Susan, Rachel, Orange Julian, and Alyssa. Thank you, folks, so much. And we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers on iTunes. So thank you, CK Bones 33 Beth Abe, Electro Z-Man, and Rangers Almanac. And our two reviewers on Podbean, Rich Monroe Monroe and the Drunk Phytologist. And I, I got to say, the, uh, the Rangers Almanac, I liked how he said he likes our dad humor. <laughs> yeah. That was good. I mean, that's a good way to put it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and because of my personal shortcomings, this episode may or may not have a thumbnail by Always Wandering Art, but as always, links to their website and Etsy page in the episode notes. Um, I also wanted to give a few mentions to websites that have mentioned us recently. So thank you to Ungardening, Concord Wildlife Allowance, All Outdoors Guide, 
London Peregrine Partnership, an incomplete list of podcasts about the natural world, and Flying South Birding. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, you guys, so much. I haven't checked those out yet. Yeah. As we said before, please go check out gumleafusa.com. We have links in the episode notes and on our website. If any of you have your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. You can always visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com, and all our social media links are there. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash thefieldguides or through the PayPal donate button on our website. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next month. See you next month. Bye.